Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah in Portland. And this is Dimity in Denver, back over uh, from two state lines. I crossed Wyoming and South Dakota, Sarah, for my tropical, not spring break. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't, uh, didn't quite turn out as maybe you had imagined in your head. It, it did not. I, the optimistic side of me was hoping for, you know, 55, 60, 65 degree temperatures, which it had been earlier. We went to... Um, well, quick story. I won't. I won't drag this out too much. But I really wanted to see a beach. I really, really needed some salt air, some sand under my feet, a little umbrella in my drink. So I spent about two hours one night, you know, on different various websites trying to kind of figure out how we could make it all work. Um, and uh, and I kind of came up with a somewhat of a plan, hoping that my husband would <laughs> sign off on it financially. And. Um, and he came in, he's like, I can't be away that week. I have to be at work. He's, you know, he's, he's an editor for different magazines and the magazine was going to press, meaning he had to check every page before it went. So, so he was, had to be present. So I was like, well, I am not staying here for a week with my seven and 10 year old children while my husband is working crazy hours. Like that is just a recipe for insanity in my mind. Um, so um, I'm like, where could we go? And uh, I was on a run with a, a friend of mine, uh, Laurel, and I was telling her about the situation. She was like, one of my kids' favorite springs break spring breaks was in um, Rapid City, South Dakota. <laughs> like, All right. And so so the, the the selling point is the indoor water park, which is uh, between a La Quinta Inn and a Fairfield Inn, which was mm-hmm. our um, our digs for the week, the Fairfield mm-hmm. Inn, mm-hmm. or for the three days. And uh, so the idea was, was that the, the, the water park opened at four every day. And um, so that's where like Mount Rushmore is. There's a bunch of cool cave Not- tours. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a uh, Custer State Park is there that has buffalo and deer and wild turkeys. And I mean, there's a lot to do. I mean, people, when I posted my pictures on Facebook, which were snowy and um, <laughs> freezing, um, people were like, oh, that was the best trip ever. I love that place. And I mean, a lot of people have recommended places to do things, things to do there. So if the weather had been nice, the four o'clock opening would have been perfect. Cause I, you know, forced my kids, like, there's nothing to do here. We've got to go do, you know, educational historical things. And we'll be back for the water park. Uh-huh. Um, cause you, cause out, you envision, you envision yourself going on hikes and all oh, those yeah, sort of things during I, I the day. Envisioned us, yeah. I mean, just having a, just a ball of a time, the three of us. Um, and, uh, turns out that we got there Saturday when my mom, my mom came to, mm-hmm. um, as a stand in for Grant and, uh, <laughs> So my mom came and we we got there Sunday afternoon. We're checking into the hotel. They're like, "Are you, did you stop because of the blizzard?" <laughs> oh my gosh, what blizzard! Oh, they had named it already, and it was coming that night. You're and like, no, this is our final destination. <laughs> we are here for good. And um, so Monday was a blizzard, indeed. All schools were closed. Oh boy. Um, we ended up going to the Mount Rushmore mall (laughs) spending some time in a video arcade and um (laughs) random little shops and eating at fud records which i hadn't ate at in i don't even know i mean since like my high school days oh boy Uh uh-huh yeah oh boy is right um and uh uh, like long story short tuesday we got out it was snowing but we did get to see we went to the largest reptile collection or i don't know what they call it a reptile garden or (laughs) i don't know um more more snakes like four to five hundred snakes at this thing um giant tortoises um crocodiles i mean i'll i'll give i'll send you a picture there's one crocodile called maniac that i swear is 
I can't remember how big it was, but it was just huge. I mean, <laughs> it's just huge. Um, and I am not a snake person. And um, we had, we went with another family. I said this wasn't going to be long, but it's kind of entertaining. Um, we went with another family. <laughs> we had adjoining rooms to our suite. So we had like, you know, kind of a, it was a nonstop party. So they have three kids. And their fourth grader is a boy, and uh, and he is into snakes oh like boy. nobody's business. Oh. And so we we ended up hitting the um, the snake terrarium where whatever you call it uh-huh. at the exact time they were feeding them. They oh feed them boy. once oh, stop a it. week. Stop it. And it's dead rats. And literally my whole, the whole posse, except for me, was just like going from, you know, cage to cage to cage to watching them throw in these dead rats and they kind of, you know, shake them to make them look alive. Oh, oh, I saw one and I was just like, I need to go lie down. (laughs) Um, So uh, I got to say, though, I bet it's so much less violent that the fact that the rats are dead i mean if i think it would be way too traumatic even for kids if it was like oh look the snake is going at oh my gosh it's catching it and now it's swallowing it like to see it swallowing something live would be really traumatizing i think oh it was it would be it would be well then so then later then we made it just in time for the snake show um (laughs) your timing was perfect it was impeccable i know know. the 10 o'clock snake show and um the guy was saying like yeah it's all good when we hand him the rats but then we when we had the like constrictors the rabbits everyone has (gasps) a hissy fit i'm like "Uh uh-huh yeah i just didn't need to know that and meanwhile the snake show i mean I have to say, like, the little plastic divider between, you know, the guy handling the snakes and us, I mean, it was probably two feet tall, but it felt about two inches tall to me. And they brought out... They brought a, a cobra, Sarah. <laughs> oh shoot! And you're like and the cobra. The cobra. This is how the cobra was. Um, this is how it was uh, housed. Okay, it had a blanket over it. <laughs> then it had. Then you pull off the blanket. Then there was a padlock on the cage. And then there were two little hinge things that you had to turn to open up the cage. And I'm like, wow, we are taking that much protection to not get hurt. And then all that's between us is this like flimsy little plexiglass. I'm like, keep your feet up, everybody. Keep your feet up. It's totally like a far side cartoon. You oh, know? it was totally, it was, it was. And, in the, and the, the place was packed. Um, it was packed. Well, because there was nothing else to do. Um, so anyway, so we got our snake fix. And then we went to go see Mount Rushmore, which was very cool because it was snowing. And I would say they're probably gosh, 50 people there total. So, I mean, it almost felt like we had the whole place to ourselves and that was to see it in such a peaceful time. I mean, it wasn't freezing, freezing, and it was just beautiful with the, you know, the light snow falling and all that. Yeah. I got to say, that reminds me when um, Jack and I were in China many moons ago before we had children, we went to the great, and it was in November. It was in the great, we went, saw the Great Wall of China and it snowed the night before just like two inches or something. And that's pretty unusual outside of Beijing to get snow in early November. And it just made it feel extra special. Just cleans it up, right? It Mm -hmm. cleans up an an off-traveled national (laughs) monument, which just makes it feel just a little bit like less kind of grimy and yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my so, goodness. Yeah. So then, so the, the wrap up to the trip. So that was good. I mean, Tuesday we got our, you know, our fill. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wednesday morning we were going to go to the cave park, mm. um, cave of the winds, I think it was called or something like that. I can't remember. Um, and then possibly head home, possibly stay. And we woke up and there was snowing two inches of snow an hour, which was actually <laughs> worse than the blizzard that came through on Monday. So we just, um, <laughs> I tailed it out of town. So, so that was my, 
tropical spring break. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. We uh as we record this, my best friend who lives in Brooklyn, she and her daughter are out visiting us, as you know, Dimity. But they are out here because it's um in Brooklyn they get a a week vacation in February and then a week vacation in April. So Tallulah, uh, my friend's daughter, is out here with her mom, and and um, Tallulah is about eight months younger than Phoebe, and so we're having a little spring break um, with them. And so we actually yesterday I took them to the coast. We went out for the Oregon coast, got some sand that, under that, our that feet. Sounds Dimity. tropical. That yeah. sounds tropical. <laughs> yeah, you can you can think that there's sand for sure. Um, <laughs> you just need three wetsuits to put your toe in it. But. Right, right. Much neoprene needed. So we went. So um, my friend who has an even more interesting name than you do, Dimity. Her name's Chalkley, and her daughter Tallulah, and then Phoebe, my older daughter, and I went out to the coast and really endured the wrath of the twins who we left behind and didn't tell them ahead of time that we were going because we knew they'd be so angry about it. And then, so we... So what did they do? What did oh, they, they were furious. Abs- Daphne was livid. She was livid. And it was the only time she's ever used uh, Jack, her dad's, my husband's, cell phone to text me and so she oh. yeah so she was oh and then oh my gosh and then um so they were both at sports when we left and so then when they got back and they found out then you know like john calls and he puts it on speakerphone on their end so i can hear both of them at the same time griping at me and daphne crying and so um but we did our best to um you know put that behind us and try to make them feel as best as we could over the phone and ultimately we just had to I turned off my ringer because I was like, "There's no way to make the, there's no way to make this situation any better." I'm just just tuning tuning it out. So, but then, um, Chalkley has lived. She lived in England for a year, and she became quite the um, metal detector while she was there. And so, a friend had told us about the you know the wrecks off the Oregon coast, and that they're sometimes um, Spanish, you know, um, gold. Um, you know, bits, I'm forgetting the name, not doubloons, that's, that wouldn't be Spanish, but um, not, ga- not galleons. Anyway, that you can find them, that people find actual stuff from these, you know, these Spanish wrecks or whatever type of wrecks these are. And so that was all Chocolate needed to know. And so she's immediately Googling. And so she, um, you, yes, you can rent metal detectors on the Oregon coast. In, oh, in, did you? In Cannon Beach. So we rented, they have two of them. So we rented two of them. And so I let Chocolate and the girls go off while I, um, propped myself up against a, a log that was there on the beach and I read Entertainment Weekly for a little while and then closed my eyes for a few minutes. <laughs> uh, they find anything? Oh my goodness. So they found so they were just the most the lamest, lamest metal detectors. Like Chalkley shows me by running it over her hand, you know, which she has a couple rings on and it doesn't even doesn't even, you know, make any noise as it goes oh, over a couple sure. so anyway, so so she comes back, I'm like, Oh, what'd you find? <laughs> they found a paper clip and a nickel and <laughs> <laughs> like one other thing. And so then I said, oh my gosh, Molly and I find more change than that when we're running. And sure enough, this morning on our run, Molly found a nickel. I'm like, proof, proof. There we go. There you go, right there. Awesome. awesome. So anyway, wow, so that's wow. my uh, spring break uh, beach beach experience. Yeah. All right. So we have snakes and metal detectors. Well, next year's got to be better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's going to only go up from here. Even if we only drink, you know, margaritas and make some homemade guacamole. Yeah. So, so that's right. Because then when we got home, I was like, oh, I have to cook dinner. So I made uh, tacos and Jack, um, who does not drink during Lent, 
offered chocolate and margarita. So she nursed that all evening. So that was, that was fun. So yes, yes. So we have a guest today. We have Jill Farmer, who is the mother of two teens and she is a time and life management coach in St. Louis. And she's the author of, there's not, not enough time and other lies we tell ourselves. And you had, have been wanting to have Jill on the show for quite a while because you got to interview her for a magazine article. And you know that she has lots of tips on how um, to, you know, kind of lose the overly busy feeling that we all have and how we can kind of take a new perspective on time and, and how we use it. Jill, thanks for making time for us uh, today. We're pleased to talk to you. There is no place I'd rather be than chatting with you guys. You know, I love your stuff and I love your energy and I love the the way that you um, invigorate so many of us to think about um, how we move, how we think, how we consciously make choices in our life. So very cool to spend some time with you today. Oh, wow. Thank you. Awesome. Thank well, thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Jill, before we dive into the, you know, the, the hard hitting questions, a little <laughs> bit about your uh, professional background and then also just your, um, your running or exercise background. So my professional background was most of my working career post college, uh, was spent in as a TV journalist. I was a, an anchor and reporter, um, working. I did uh, consumer reporting. And then I worked, um, as an anchor as well. And I loved to tell stories and I loved to communicate with people. And it was really, um, a passion of mine. And I found the challenges of that career and the time commitment and the intensity of it to not be such a great fit with motherhood, I thought. And so I made the decision to leave my um, career, TV career, and what some would have considered the height of the career. Um, And so that was confusing to a lot of people. And in retrospect, for me, I realized I was sort of leaving under false pretenses because I thought if I just switched around the circumstances of my life once again in this way that then I would have enough time to be the person I wanted to be and do the things that I wanted to be. So um, from there, I kind of entered into a, a, a what I kind of call my rock bottom period, but like J.K. Rowling says, rock bottom proved to be a really good place from which to rebuild. <laughs> and so it was really a journey of self-discovery um, that led me to figure out that I was, whether I was working full time in a busy newsroom or whether I was trying to be a stay-at-home mom and balance volunteer duties and kid uh, life and their activities and, and somehow create time to take care of my body and my mind and my soul. Um, whatever the external circumstances were, I had some really entrenched thinking patterns that were creating a sense of either being that hamster on the wheel, frenzied all the time or overwhelmed, no matter what was happening outside of my life. So, um, it's that, so it's just been that journey of self-discovery led me to a new career. I went back to school and started and uh, studied under Dr. Martha Beck, um, and got certification originally as a life coach and then as a master coach. And, um, and I started writing and traveling around all over the place, learning and and speaking and and uh, and developing information and knowledge around what makes us all feel so frenzied and overwhelmed all the time. Um, so, and in terms of running, it was something I just I I you know ran. I was a high school athlete and I ran kind of as part of sports and then to keep in shape after that. And it was really motherhood that drew me back into running again because it was one of the only times that I could kind of just 
be outside and in this my own space. Um, and my uh, pesky knee injury kept me from um, continuing uh, running as a as a as a long term exercise plan for now. But I'm a pretty passionate. Um, hiker. I, if I'm outside and moving my body, um, you can generally, I can generally tell you that whatever's not working so well tends to, it tends to be a reset button for me. I also really enjoy yoga and I love to play some tennis and um, I'm, I love, love, love water skiing um, and uh, snow skiing when those are seasonally appropriate. Um, so I really, I really, uh, and I've learned that they, I used to think they were sort of nice little fringe benefits, uh, the icing on the cake, so to speak, when I had time. And I've learned that they've become more of the non-negotiables in my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We understand that completely. <laughs> yeah. So um, so on your site, you, you talk about forging a new relationship with time. And as runners, um, you know, we think we all know about the hard and fast nature of time, like doing a 5K in under 30 minutes, you know, take taking an hour-long run, breaking the two-hour mark for a half marathon, but kind of enlighten us on how we might be able to change our perspective on time. Well, you know, it's funny because a lot of times people will talk about me being a time management expert. Um, and, um, you know, my book was a bestseller in the time management category. And it's interesting because I really think time management is baloney. <laughs> I think it's about... Um, because when we think we can manage time, it sort of has this battle or, uh, you know, paradigm where it's like, I'm trying to beat the clock. And, and when we're racing or setting goals for ourselves in terms of, um, you know, the time when we're running, that's, that can be one of the ways that we motivate ourselves to move forward. But when we begin to shift our paradigm a little bit by thinking about how we can embrace time instead of trying to manage it or beat it how do we embrace it then it takes on a little bit of a different to me broader perspective so instead of kind of having this narrow sort of short-sighted vision we look at the broader picture and how do I create time how do I set intentions so that the the you know fixed amount of time I have in the day we all have the same 24 hours looks like the stuff that I want to do gets put in there gets prioritized and um, how what do I really want to get out of it it feels great to to beat our times and to improve our speed and do all those things but that's not the only reason we run. It's not the only reason most people run. There's a much, and if it is the only reason you run, you set yourself up for some disappointment and frustration because every time it works out great, you can be happy. And every time it doesn't, you can't be happy. That's kind of a, a pretty shallow or short, um, it's a pretty small reward system. When you begin to look at it in the broader picture, what is this doing for my health? What's it doing for my mental well-being? What's it showing me in terms of character about resilience? Wow, that's when the richness of the experience starts to become more ingrained, and it's how we develop longer-term habits and, I think, a greater sense of meaning in our lives. So that's what I'm talking about when I say sort of forging a new relationship with time. It's really just shifting your perspective from the same old way of thinking about it. 
Well, that's that's interesting because I mean I think what what happens is um, I mean I know for me I'm like okay well from one to two I'm gonna do this and from two to three I'm gonna do this and then I've got to go get my kids and then after you know from four to six it's all about them or or whatever um, but but just you saying like embracing time I had a, an image of like time is a river and it kind of like flows around like I'm standing in the middle of it and it just flows around me and I just like scoop it up when I need it and let it flow when it needs to go I don't know if that's like a little too agey or not but I mean one of the things that I find with um, women that we talk to a lot is that, you know, they, they, they are always kind of waiting for the right time for things to happen, you know, like the Red Seas to part so that, um, oh, now is, now is the time that I should be a runner or now is the time that I should really try and get that half marathon PR or now is the time to step up to a triathlon. And, and as we all know, I mean, we're all, you know, a couple decades old, like, you know, there isn't a perfect time to buy a house or get married or have a kid. You just kind of have to let it flow around you to absorb it, right? I mean, so can you talk a little bit about that? How do you just plunge in and like, um, and, and get that perspective? Man, I love that. That's a really cool metaphor. So I'm, I, I'm really glad you said that because that's a really cool way to, to, um, visualize it. And you're on to something big. I think when we get into this whole mindset of the right time, that's part of this, the, the basic foundation of what I teach is when we try to motivate ourselves or prioritize to do anything from the space of not enough, we're used to like, I need her, I need to get stuff done in this, there's not enough time space. And what we know from the brain science is when we think in those terms, it literally constricts our ability to think, to, to it lowers our cognitive ability, it, it reduces our ability to problem solve. We tend to instead hyper focus on all the problems, all the things that are wrong instead of looking for solutions or moving through them. I call it problem stalling instead of problem solving. It, 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 it causes us to a lot of times make really stupid mistakes because we're really, we're in fight or flight mode and we're, we're only operating out of the most primitive part of our brain that says, you know, protect yourself, you know, freeze or flee. And, um, when we try to create these, these false constructs or these rules for ourselves. Like there's only a right time or these conditions, when this happens, then I'll be able to. It's another form of that really primitive thinking taking over our lives. Like it's like this train. We're thinking of it like this train that only is going to come, you know, at a certain time and we have to be at the stop at a certain time. And, and it's not, there's no, th those rules don't really exist except for in the most primitive part of our brain. And we realize, no, Trains always at the station. We always yeah. can get on, and and then we get to say when it's time to go. We just got to show up at the station and quit telling ourselves stories about how you know we're gonna we've missed it or it's missed us. That's when we make that decision. We get a little bit brave, and then we start operating. I think out of our best selves instead of out of that little you know scaredy cat part of your brain called the amygdala that really stopped developing when you were five years old. Yet a lot of us are used to motivating ourselves and trying to keep ourselves safe from that really limited perspective. Hmm. Yeah, I really like that about the not having to, you know, that the train isn't just going to be there at one specific time, that as long as you show up ready for it, it can, you can be, in, you know, the conductor of that train in a way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so on your website, you just uh, describe yourself as a recovered busyness addict, which I just, I just love. And um, I'm, I'm feeling like that busyness addict, addict um, 
phrase kind of describes a lot of us mother runners and, and that we maybe are not recovered, but we're practicing ones. We're, we're, you know, in the midst of it. So, you know, what do you think are the signs of that addiction and ways to start getting over it? Well, I think anytime if you notice that when somebody asks you how you are, your answer is busy or one of its derivatives, mm. chances are somewhere in your conditioning of recent times, you began to believe the lie that busyness is our worth a meter and that the busiest, busier we are, the, the more we're worth. Mm. Um, and, and when I really dig down with clients or with people that I'm speaking to in groups, a lot of times... They find whatever they're busy with is really empty and unsatisfying and not giving it much meaning. And the stuff that 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 is not described as busyness, even though we're they're kind of secretly afraid to not be busy, when they're not busy is when the real meaning comes flowing into their lives, to use the 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 river um, an, analogy again. And when, when this first came to me, I had a friend who's really self-aware and, and, and just sharp and direct. And I, um, when we were having a discussion about sort of being so busy, and she goes, you know, are we really or are we just so used to telling everybody that's what we are because we're afraid that somehow they'll think that we're not important or meaningful or whatever enough if we, don't, if we dare to say I'm not busy. And um, she just said, you know, I bet if we ask, both of us ask the next 10 people that we see how they are, I bet they'll all tell us they're busy. And we did that as a little kind of experiment. And 10 out of the 10 people answered us separately with, with I'm busy or some form of that. And, and so ever since then, it really, you know, got me thinking about what I, I realized in my case, I use busy as a cover story a lot. Hmm. Cause if I'm, if I can say I'm busy, I don't really have to say what's, or, even look or even explore for myself what isn't really going so great in my life. Or I don't have to face the idea that maybe, you know, it's okay that I have some white space in my calendar or in my day to, to let stuff kind of percolate or marinate a little bit. Um, or I'm, I, maybe I don't, I'm not by just saying I'm busy, I'm not facing the fact that I'm actually feeling really overwhelmed and not doing much of anything. Cause I'm kind of feeling paralyzed by that sense of overwhelm. Cause I tend to see people take on two different modes when they're in busy addiction. One is to kind of be that hamster on the wheel that's moving constantly for the sake of moving. But at the end of the day, you're not really sure what the heck you got accomplished other than you're exhausted and depleted and afraid that you got to jump back on it tomorrow or paralyzed in the sense that are just kind of like, there's so much to do. I don't even know what to stop do. So that's when we tend to kind of either procrastinate or hide out a little bit and not really make much progress of anything significant. And some people really fall into one of those two categories or another. Some are like me. You know, when I ask you, are you more the hamster on the wheel or are you more that kind of uh, um, paralyzed under the boulder of overwhelm and, and I, you raise both hands in the air like I do and say, <laughs> it depends on what day of the week you're talking about. But they're both essentially sort of hideout modalities that we get into when we are addicted to the busyness versus really connecting to what we want our lives to look like 
and daring to be brave enough to create some intention around what we want it to look like and making that happen. And the place where it really starts is not in those circumstances. Like when I talked about, well, I had to quit my job first and then I had to do this and then I need to, it wasn't like, I thought it was this big chess game of life outside of me that I needed to mess around with. And what I really realized it was, it was in my brain, which is where the start, where the process needed to start. And that's where the really important new foundation was laid. And once I got that stuff kind of unwonkified, to use a very highly technical term (laughs) for your highly uh, evolved listeners, um, that's when I could start then dealing with some of the, you know, practicalities and logistics of, of... of moving things around, but it, it, it's, you know, it was, a, it was the process really had to start with my, my brain. Well, and so, I mean, it sounds like it's, that's probably, that could be like a two hour show right there, but I mean, can you just <laughs> give a, a couple ideas? Like, I mean, cause if, I mean, I think you've described, you know, 90% of us mother runners in, in those right. two categories. So how do you, how do you find that kind of calm and figure out that, you know what, it's not the 17 things that you think are weighing down on you. It's actually the, you know, it's what's coming from inside. I mean, do you, right. what do you do? It's not your circumstance. So look, so just play a little game with me. When you guys think the thought, um, the, when, you know, serendipity, think the thought, there's not enough time. I do not have enough time. How do you feel? Just shout it out. Mad, sad, glad, panicky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I feel pretty anxious and stressed. Okay. Anxious, stressed, panicky. When you're anxious and stressed and panicky, how do you tend to act? How do you treat other people? Short tempers. Yeah. Not, not super, not super nice to those around me. Okay. What happens to your focus? Gets distracted and I can't settle on one thing. Okay. Yeah. What happens to your thinking ability? Uh, It gets much, yeah, much, much shorter, much harder to kind of you know you need to do this one thing and god it's got to be done by the deadline but you know dang it if you can figure out how to get it going or focus in on it right so just notice by just thinking that little innocent thought which right feels like truth right it doesn't feel like it's a thought it's just a series of words it's just a thought but it really feels like truth it elicits an automatic emotional reaction which will used to use a host of i'll use the technical term cruddy feelings right <laughs> panic stress anxiety uh, people will say things like hopelessness frustration those are the i've never once had speaking to thousands of people had somebody say it makes me feel peaceful joyful calm fun and you know those words <laughs> have never happened it's always a host of some form of you know cruddy feelings which then tends to elicit behaviors like Exactly what you described. Difficult, difficulty in relating or collaborating with other people. Difficulty focusing. Difficulty being productive or connected to action. So the end result, we just follow like a little arrow from each. You start feeling, you feel cruddy, you act cruddy, and ultimately you get less done, right? Because the ways that you're acting are in the opposite direction of productivity, efficiency, connectedness, collaboration, the things that tend to make us be able to move through things more quickly. So the, that's just the, that I walked through that example just to let you know that just thinking the thought, there's not enough time, or I don't have enough time. Just thinking that thought 
elicits a series of actions and reactions which costs you enormous amounts of time. So when so that plays out, people tell me you know stories like you can go on and on and on about the the being in that state and you miss the exit when you're going to be two minutes late and it makes you 25 minutes late. Mm-hmm. The doctor who's getting ready to do the biggest presentation of a career for grant money and this leading cardiologist of in the world who accident when the pounding headache that came up from that panic and stress state accidentally takes two extra strength NyQuil instead of two oh extra strength Advils are not in the best mind state to do what we're doing. I mean, the stories are endless about what the sabotage that happens in that mind state. The great news is that the solution for getting out of the mind state that some of us are just so used to being in you know, it is a form of addiction because we're just, that's kind of how we're used to feeling all the time is in that fight or flight panic state. The solutions are really unbelievably simple. And one is to simply notice. Oh, I notice I'm having the, there's not enough time thought again. In the act of noticing, if I had your brains hooked up to like functional MRI technology, you would go from having that tiny little part of your brain that, that, that processes emotional responses, um, that little part lighting up where we tend to act and react without thinking, is when just when you say, oh, I notice I'm having that there's not enough time thought again, your whole neocortex, your whole brain would light up when you notice that, because it takes you out of that lower functioning part of your brain to the higher functioning part of your brain, where you can go, okay, notice I'm having that thought again. That thought doesn't tend to do me much good. (sighs) Okay, so how can I look at things differently and take a plan of action that's going to be more likely to serve me here? So instead of reacting without thinking, what what some one scientist called cranial abduction <laughs> that happens when we're in that panic, you allow yourself to um, use all the parts of your brain. And the other thing that's even a more powerful version of that is to replace the thought there's not enough time with the thought there is enough time. And sometimes I'll have, you know, like I will have doubters, of course, that in, in the crowd or I'm speaking to a group of doctors or people that tend to be really left brain and they're like, that's great, Jill, only I can never believe that thought. Because <laughs> I, I have the, the calendar and the stress and the overwhelm and all these things to prove it. And so I just always say, well, you know, how many hours are there in a day? And the answer, of course, is always 24. Is that amount fixed or variable? Fixed. So every time you're telling yourself there's not enough time, if that's a fixed amount, aren't you arguing with reality? Mm-hmm. And if that arguing with reality is eliciting this action-reaction cycle that's taking you in the opposite direction you want to go and sabotaging enormous amounts of your time and, and sucking a lot of fun energy and meaning out of your life, how about you replace it with something that's more likely to be a more solid foundation? There is enough time. <sighs> Notice what happens and use that to get you out of fight or flight mode so that you can use the your highest, you know, and best self to make decisions, to prioritize, to um, to make sure that your life looks like what, like it's a lot more lined up with your deepest values as opposed to something that's just happening to you. Mm-hmm. So, so you, um, I love all that and I need to just realize that those are some easy, I mean, it just sounds so easy to just say there is enough time. And so I, I need to remember that I need to listen to this podcast over and over again. Um, but, um, so, um, 
Uh, how can exercise and, and running in particular, given uh, that we're mother runners, help someone kind of move from that chaos to calm? That well, yeah, that's and it's it's probably actually one of the best ways. Um, and so sometimes, even if you can't get yourself to be okay, there is enough time. If you can get yourself moving your body and get out the door and on the run, even for a very short amount of time, there you will. Take yourself out of that um, fight or flight mode, and you'll actually kick in. You'll go from that the um, the parasympathetic nervous system or the sympathetic nervous system, where you're like, oh, into that part of you that is more calm, connected, and clear. So understand that sometimes it's a you know get clear and calm and prioritize so that you can make time for the run and sometimes just get out there and run and realize that the things that are happening to yourself physiologically will come will shift you out of that fight or flight mode into a different space i mean have you guys had that experience where you were feeling really jumbled and frenzied and stressed out and you got out the door and start and your feet started hitting the pavement and you noticed that suddenly what seemed so dire didn't feel so dire anymore pretty much every day yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the beauties. That is why we run a lot of the time. I would say. Um, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, so um, so one of the things that um, I have your book right in front of me, and uh, one of the things that I really liked about it was that you have a rule of five on the to do list. Yeah. Um, and so I want you to talk about that a little bit, and I also want you to talk about why exercise doesn't belong on that. <laughs> well. I, I, first of all, I mean, when I work with people initially, a lot of times what I see um, is, to, I think to-do lists are great. I think they help us stay in our lane. They give us kind of some structure, and they, they're, they're really useful things. I find a lot of women use to-do lists as sources of self-abuse, <laughs> to, <laughs> to vomit up every single thing that they need to do in order to be a worthwhile uh, woman, aunt, mother, daughter, wife, employee, citizen of the world, you name it, onto this diatribe, really, or dissertation that they call their to-do list, so that at the end of every day, you have this black and white proof in front of you that you're inadequate and you're never going to get everything done. (laughs) And that, so when we use our to-do list like that, it tends to do the opposite of helping us get things done and accomplish things. It tends to just weigh us down and perpetuate a a brain state that doesn't feel good and and it just does the opposite of motivating us. So one of the things I first encourage people to do is to really use your to-do list for today and to use it with five things or fewer as to guide you with tasks that you can get done today that are not on your calendar. Exercise to me doesn't belong on a to-do list because when the things on our to-do list are the things that we fit in between other obligations on our calendar. And when we um, calendar things like exercise, we make it a lot more likely that they're actually going to get done. When I have, you know, exercise on my list with return library books, you know, do email, get to whatever, I'm, when other life things happen, I may or may not get to it when it's on my to-do list. When it's on my calendar, I block it away just like I block my, you know, radio interview with, with Dimity and Sarah. Oh, this is the time for me to do this. And so here I am doing this within this time. 
Um, one of the things that I see people that keeps a lot of my clients from exercising, because that's a lot of what I work with people on initially, is like, what do you want your life to look like? And almost everybody values health. And almost everybody wishes that they were exercising more, but they don't have, and tells me that they don't have time for it. What I realize is a lot of times people have this story that it doesn't count unless it's, you know, similar to the workout that they saw Jillian Michaels doing with whoever on The Biggest Loser. So it needs to be a minimum of 90 minutes at this intensity. <laughs> and therefore, they never have that block of 90 minutes on their calendar or they keep putting on their to-do list and 90 minutes never falls from the sky to provide time to do it. So I will look at their calendar and I've had clients that had made huge health strides that literally what we put on their calendar was put tennis shoes on in the morning, walk for five minutes. Mm -hmm. Because it began to create a habit or a pattern of moving the body, clearing the mind, using it as kind of a discernment period. And walking five minutes felt so good that then that a lot of times it was like, well, I actually have 30 minutes. So I'm going to walk for 30 minutes. And, and that felt so good that, you know, I used to run a little bit or I really, um, you know, I love running. And so what people would realize is that, you know, a good 20 minute run on a day that normally you wouldn't have done any exercise because there wasn't enough time to do it has great benefits. And when you begin to do it that way, then the, the, you know, 90 minute run, if you're training for the half or the, um, as you build up the, the greater time, it's, it all, it just lowers the hurdle, so to speak, for getting to each of those next goals as they come in. But I always give people permission, the threshold to make initial action steps ridiculously easy. Our brain tends to tell us a lot of it doesn't count unless it's hard stories, which means that we don't do a lot of stuff because, and then we beat ourselves up and the mean voice in our head makes us feel worse about ourselves. And so then we go eat ice cream and turn on Netflix. So we don't have to think about it anymore versus letting ourselves have that threshold that says, you know what? It all counts. And being committed to putting on my tennis shoes and moving my body counts. And as I begin to get into that habit, more uh, often the the next threshold of making bigger strides, longer goals just kind of fall in place. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, totally. Totally. No, I think that that's, I mean, I mean, I think we all fall into that, you know, it's got to, you know, it, it, it can be for a beginning runner, like I've got to go run a mile or it doesn't count, you know, where, you know, for somebody who's been running for a long time, well, it's got to be at least a 45 minute run or it's not worth my time, you know, where, like you said, a 20 minute run is, you know, ripples, you know, it ricochets through all levels of your life on that day, you know, and just makes you, puts you in a better place no matter where you are. So mm -hmm. if that's all you can do, that's all you can do, but it's, it's definitely not, it's not inadequate, right? Yeah. I mean, I noticed like when I was in heavy, when I was writing my book and I had these stories, I needed to be at my computer for how many hours during the day. Even when I would just get up every hour for two or three minutes and do some exercises and move around and move my body, it shifted my ability to think. And I got a lot more done. And I was like, isn't that interesting? And so then I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go take a walk or go hike for 45 minutes. And that's not 45 minutes that it's taking away from my writing. It's 45 minutes that's resetting myself. So when I sit down, ideas are flowing, words come more easily. I'm not slogging through. I'm, 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 I'm like rebooting myself so I can operate more efficiently again. Yeah. It's actually giving to your writing, right? Well, so yeah. before, before we change and I just, and then, um, the top, 
topic, I just want to add the other thing that I loved about your book, um, or the part about the to-do list book, is that you change that um, to a choose to do or a get to do list instead of a to do list is I either choose to do it or I get to do it. So, you know, right. I mean, so many tasks, the mother are so freaking mundane, you know, like, <laughs> and I make like 17,000 more lunches because that's what I'm looking at <laughs> for the rest of my life and returning the library books and driving carpool and sitting on the soccer lines and all that. And yes, of course we appreciate it. And of course, you know, you, I try to have this like attitude of gratefulness that, you know, I get to watch my healthy, mostly happy kids grow up, you know? Um, but at the same time, it is, it's so hard to kind of, um, you know, really embrace that day after day. So can you talk a little bit about the choose to do and get to do lists? Yeah. Amen. I mean, that's just, you know, it's, it, 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 yeah. If I have to empty the dishwasher one more time, it's like (laughs) some days I'm like, Oh, I didn't know why we all have our triggers, right? That's one for me. Um, but for what I realized somebody brought to my attention when I was first started kind of exploring this as a body of work was that even though I don't, I don't ever write it at the top of my to-do list, I don't write have to do on the top of my to-do list, but that's what I'm thinking in my head. Oh my gosh, this is all the stuff I have to do. And, and, I, and I didn't think anything of it. That was just, you know, what it was. And I realized as I was studying some, um, some research that connects the language you use with the way that our brains function, that every time we tell ourselves we have to do something, we react biochemically. And this is a little bit of an uh, of a, uh, oversimplification, but it's basically true that every time we think we have to do something, we react biochemically similarly to the way that an animal feels when it's in a cage, right? Mm-hmm. It's another trigger for that fight or flight response. Have to triggers a sense of survival, right? And so without even thinking about it subconsciously, when we tell ourselves we have to do something, we're operating again out of that out of that survival mode versus where I know I'm at my best, which is when I'm in thrive mode. There's a big difference to me between, oh, I'm just getting by versus, no, what do, I want to thrive here today. So... I, and, and I looked into it a little bit more and, and, and learned more about this from one of my mentors, Martha Beck, and, and who has studied this in a much deeper level than me. And, and she said, you know, what differentiates us as human beings from animals is that we can make choices. We don't just have to react to threats in our environment. We choose. That's, you know, one of the things well, as human beings we've evolved to be able to do. And when we are conscious and aware that we have choices in given situations, that makes a huge difference for the way that we react and how we um, operate. And it helps us stay in that place where we can use our whole brain versus just that little mini lizardy part of our brain, I like to call it, the reptilian part of us that can only just say, ah, scared. Um, and so just by making that change of saying, okay, I'm, I don't have to do anything but breathe today. Everything else is a choice. You can say, yes, I do. I have to pick up my kids or they'll call child protective services on me. And I don't know about you, but some days I, I think about that. It's like, <laughs> sure. what if, what if they, they, they think about something differently if somebody else came and picked them up. <laughs> but I mean, we do, we think of everything in terms of have to, but it's really a choice. I'm choosing to pick up my kids because I don't want to get arrested or I'm, you know, I'm choosing to do this because the consequences may stink. But you know what? It's still a choice. And when I recognize that, it takes me into a whole different part of my thinking. And when I do the level 500 of that, which is to say, not only do I 
am I choosing to, but I actually get to do it because your brain cannot feel fear and gratitude at the same time. Mm-hmm. Not capable. So anytime you're in like one of those panicked freak out modes, if you can take one deep breath and bring yourself back to whatever space you're in, be like, okay, what am I grateful for right now? And really feel gratitude. You can't just say, oh, I'm grateful for the tree. But if you don't feel it, it doesn't do it. That is one of the best reset buttons that we have. So when I tell myself on my to-do list, when I write at the top of my to-do list, I get to do this, suddenly instead of having to go to the grocery store, like, oh man, I get to go to the grocery store. And by the way, I've got three flipping awesome grocery stores within a couple miles of my home that have more stuff on the shelves than the average third world country has access to in a given you know, month. And, you know, instead of having to fill out my kids' uh, lacrosse team forum, the, the forums or the camp forums, it's like, you know, I get to appreciate it. And sometimes I can't get to get. Sometimes I'm not feeling grateful. <laughs> sure, so sure. When I can get, to, when I can at least be in, I'm choosing this. You know, I can complain and moan all I want, but I am choosing to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not having to do this. That still is less of an energy drain for me. Because when I have to do everything, it's just like having a hole in my energy bucket. It is just dripping out of me all day long, and I'm just yeah. depleted. Yeah, and I think yeah. I think that's also an attitude people can bring toward their running. You know that it's that I mean I and sometimes we touch upon this on our site and and a lot of our fans do on Facebook that that you know that the the blessing of being able to head out the door and go for a run. You know, sometimes it can seem daunting to, to look at your training schedule and think, oh, I have to go, you know, four miles today with two of them a little faster. And it's like, oh, I get to do that. I am physically able to go out there and push my body and breathe hard and, you know, dig deep. And it's, you know, that it, it just sort of resets it and gives you a different way of looking at it that can make it less onerous. Yeah, for me, it's the difference between when I'm getting ready to go out and do that. It's like I'm taking off a back, a five pound backpack off my back. Mm-hmm. I can, yeah. you know, when I'm having to do it, I'm running by with that on my back because it's just like and another reason. Mm-hmm. And here's another way. And usually, as I'm getting going, and you know, my heart rate gets up and the endorphins start going, I I shed it naturally. I get into a different mindset. You know, gosh, it is beautiful. And look at that tree. And I become a lot more present. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first part of my exercise is always about like projecting forward about stuff that I need to do or thinking back about the way things are different. And I always know I'm in the zone when I'm just there, Mm -hmm. like my mind clears and I'm just present at present. And so when I start out in that space of just letting go of that backpack before I start running of, you know, I'm choosing to do this and, um, and, 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 and I, it just, it's, it's let's go of that weight a little earlier on and lets me appreciate the benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, so two things that I wanted to add to that. So first of all, like, um, the song that I've, I've written a lot about, but Florence and the machine, um, shake it up or is it yeah. shake it off or shake it up? I think shake it's it shake out. it up, shake it out, shake it, shake it out. Yeah. And it's, and there's that, there's that line that says, um, it's hard to dance with the devil on your back. And mm-hmm. I often think to say to myself, it's hard to run with the devil on your back. Like yeah. it's hard to just carry that. So you don't, so just shake it off, you know? Um, and then the other thing about with Sarah, when you, you brought that around back to running and that I get to do this, I also think, I mean, just repeating that line at the starting line of a race, you can't feel fear and gratitude at the same time. Mm-hmm. So when you're sitting there with like, you know, you're biting your nails and your butterflies are going off and all that, like, like Jill said, like take a deep breath and just be like, lucky how the hell lucky am I right now like to get to be here you know and get to feel the fear I mean you can be grateful to feel the fear right because 
there's so many times in our lives, you know, as we get older and a little bit more complacent, like we don't put ourselves in that spot. And that's what running does for us sometimes is it kind of, you know, gets your little, you know, the butterflies going and the right. what ifs going when you don't feel that very much in your life. So that's just an act of gratitude right there. Even you can still feel scared, but but acknowledge that you get to do that, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and sports, um, uh, people who work in, in, you know, performance, sports performance stuff know way, way more about this than me, but, you know, back in the day, they used to think that any form of fear or adrenaline was great, particularly for runners, because it would feed them, and then they discovered, no, actually... <laughs> Running scared doesn't it doesn't really work so well for even for the sprinters. It's and it's not that you shouldn't feel any fear, but it's exactly you said it beautifully. It's turning that fear into fuel, and instead of having it drain you and be like, oh, what if it, which constricts right mm -hmm. and shuts down. It's like, okay, my I'm feeling all this, you know, the butterflies and the adrenaline, and I'm gonna use that as you know that to plug this in and to use it as rocket fuel to move me forward versus to let my brain go into that like that small place where it starts to just spin when I tend to when it because that is constricting and that keeps me from performing at my best you know there's sure. In like professional baseball, somebody told me the story once, and I, I, but in they, um, one of the things they do, they'll have players that are really great drill players, but then they get in games and they just like uh, in the minor leagues and they can figure it out. These guys who had great skills and great ability, athletic ability, but then they'd get in games and it was just like, who is this? It's a different person. And what they discovered is some people do a much better job of managing that fight or flight response than others. And those that don't do a good job, things like your peripheral vision narrows, mm -hmm. your, you know, your, um, um, your uh, quick um, muscle response diminishes. So if you're great when you're relaxed and super athletic, but every time you get a little bit scared, especially in baseball, mm -hmm. your peripheral vision <laughs> narrows, that sure. doesn't do anybody a lot of good. And so what they began testing is like literally putting people in higher stress or game situations and testing things like their peripheral vision to see how well they were able to manage and, and to not, not even manage, but embrace again, the fight or flight response and use it as fuel versus as, you know, a detriment to them. Sure. Sure. Well, and then the good news is that usually when you're scared at the starting line, once you start running and kind of find your groove, it goes, you know, it's not like a baseball game where you have to be constantly, you know, up to bat or catching yeah. balls or whatever. You just find a groove and then you can just kind of ride that wave for a while. So, yeah. Right. Right. Well, Jill, I think we could talk to you all afternoon, but um, we're going to be respectful of your time and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I just think you guys are awesome, and I loved this conversation, and I hope everybody does use it as fuel to notice their thoughts and notice where they're telling themselves not enough stories and consider playing with the idea of turning those around and see how it inspires and what opportunities it opens up for them. I love seeing that happen in people's lives. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jill. You're awesome. I'm very, very wise, helpful woman. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Take care. Dimity, I don't know about you, but I got about five or ten mantras alone out of that conversation with Jill. 
I know that was like a therapy session in a box. I mean, that was just awesome. I hope people were listening to that as they were running. So they really were opening to open to absorbing it. And, you know, I have enough time. I can make this work. You know, I choose and I get to do things. Yeah. Um, And that you can't, can't feel fear and gratitude at the same time. That's funny. That's funny that she said that because I had that on my notes and um, it says choose to do, get to do list. You can't feel fear and gratitude at the same time. Love that. And I was going to make her say it if, um, <laughs> or I was going to say it and have her explain it if she didn't <laughs> nice. bring it up. Feed her so, the line. <laughs> so I'm so glad that she did. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So um, to hear more from us and, and hopefully get some other great pointers, go to our Facebook page. We're Run Like a Mother, the book. Our website is anothermotherrunner.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at The Mother Runner. Our two books, Run Like a Mother and Train Like a Mother, are available on Amazon, as well as on our new store site, which is motherrunnerstore.com. You can listen to us there. We've got the audio book version of Run Like a Mother. So if you're a big listener and runner at the same time, check that yeah, out. Yeah. So, and uh, whatever you're listening to, or maybe just some more calm, centered thoughts, many happy miles to you. Mm-hmm.